Hey, video game fans, I'm Ben Bertoli, and this is Memory Card. Push is currently in the middle of moving and changing jobs, and he just got married. So I decided to let him sit this episode out. He's very busy, or at least that's what he tells me. I have a theory that he's just sitting around playing Animal Crossing. Either way, I've decided to replace him with someone much, much cooler. You, the listener. We put our feelers out on Patreon and Twitter for folks with interesting gaming history blips, and I'm happy to report that we had listeners call in from all around the world. Even some weird place called Flow, Florida, Florida, I think is how it's pronounced. Just a reminder that this is the last episode for Season 2, and also a bonus episode made possible by our wonderful patrons. We very much appreciate all the support, and we hope more fans of the show will check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash memcard. But more on that later, let's get this last episode rolling with our first listener blip. Hey, is this Daniel? Yes, it is. Is this Ben? Yeah, this is Ben from Memory Card. I hear uh, you got a story for me. Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, well, let's hear it. I want to tell the story of Monolith Soft, one of Nintendo's big publishers and parties now. What are they mainly known for, for those out there who are not big, uh, big into the different publishers? Yep, so they're mainly known for their, their series, Xenoblade. Uh, but you might also have heard of them because they've worked on some of Nintendo's other big titles such as Super Smash Brothers and Animal Crossing. Oh, okay. But to really understand this publisher, we actually need to go all the way back to the 90s to see where they've actually come from because they've had quite a, quite a weird journey to get to where they have been with Nintendo. So the, the founder, the original founder for Monolith Soft is a man named Tetsuya Takahashi. And he originally worked for Squaresoft in the 90s, which we now know by the name of Square Enix. And whilst he was there, he worked as a graphic designer on Final Fantasy VI. He made some character designs and some armor designs. And he also worked as the graphics director for Chrono Trigger. Oh, wow. That's a classic. Yeah. But he, he actually had a chance to have a major role in an even bigger classic as he tried to submit a pitch for the original plot of Final Fantasy VII. Oh, man. Yeah, but unfortunately for him, it was deemed to be too dark and too complicated for what they were trying to do with Final Fantasy. Hmm. But he did actually get a chance to publish the game and make it, uh, and it came out for the PlayStation 1 uh, called Xenogears. He released the game, he was fairly happy with it, but unfortunately he wasn't able to fully tell the story he wanted to tell because he wanted to do some follow-up sequels for it. But Square had decided to focus on Final Fantasy from then on, so he wasn't ever really going to have a chance to make another game in that series. As a result of that, he decided to leave Squaresoft completely to go and start his own company. With the help of his friend Hirohide Sugiura and the founder of Namco, Masaya Nakamura, he founded Monolith Soft all the way back in 1999 on the 1st of October. I got to jump in and say, your Japanese is way better than mine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm sure if Push was here, he would uh, uh, be impressed. Oh, that's, that's high praise. High praise indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, please go on. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so they were originally working as a subsidiary for Namco. 
And Takahashi got a chance to once again attempt to realize his visions for the story that he called his perfect works. And that was the grand story Xenogears was trying to tell. To try and tell this again, he went and developed a series of games called Xenosaga. And we got episodes one, two, and three in America and Japan. What system were those for? Were those for the PlayStation? Yep, so this is for the, all three of these were for the PlayStation 2. Oh, okay. Yep, so they're released in America and Japan, and they were trying to tell the same sort of big overarching story that he'd wanted to explore with Xenogears. Now, unfortunately for those of us such as myself in Australia and those of us in European power regions, we only ever got episode two of these games, which makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> and, if, <laughs> and if you want to experience episode one, we, we got an animated film made up of the game's cutscenes which they thought was enough for us to understand what on earth was going on. Was that included in episode two? Uh, yeah, so they had like a special edition which came with the DVD with that on it. Oh, I see. Japan then, I think it was in 2008 or 2009 possibly, they received a reworked version of episodes one and two on the DS as where they changed some of the narrative elements to try and tell a more cohesive story. But unfortunately for Xenosaga, just like Xenogears, Takashi wasn't able to tell his whole story. It was meant to be six episodes. We only ever got three. Hmm. So during that development time, uh, Takashi took a step back from directing the games to focus purely on those stories because that was what he was so passionate about. Unfortunately, that environment at Namco was starting to become a bit strenuous. They were getting to the point where Namco was merging with Bandai and we were getting that Bandai Namco we know today. But the environment in the company that was resulting from that was becoming a lot less experimental and they were trying to focus on their core products. So they weren't actually allowing them to make those sort of more experimental, more niche games like Xenosaga. Yeah, the unique ones. Yeah, the unique ones. They didn't, they didn't necessarily sell gangbusters, but they still had that core audience, unfortunately. Right. But fortunately for Takahashi and Monolith Soft, a man from Nintendo, Shinji Hatano, actually encouraged them to continue with their experimental vision and creative endeavors and actually brought them in and got them bought by Nintendo. Hmm. Yeah, so, and this was officially announced in April 2007. When, when they first came to work with Nintendo, they did some not really high-profile DS and Wii games to kind of get used to the systems, and we saw them produce a game called Soma Bringer for the DS, which was like an action RPG dungeon exploration game. And Disaster Day of Crisis for the Wii, which is a action-adventure survival game to deal with like terrorists and natural disasters. And the other thing they were doing this during this time is this was when they started to work on Nintendo's major titles, because they were actually brought in to help with the development of Super Smash Bros. Brawl during this time. Oh. Yeah, so pretty, pretty high praise for a company which had only just been brought into Nintendo's inner circles recently. Yeah. So from that point, Takashi once again, was wanting to explore a, a new world, a new story. And he was looking at one which was exploring a brand new place and telling the story of gods, of warring civilizations, and a magical sword. And he was developing this game under the title of Monado, Beginning of the World. And this was, this was progressing pretty well, and it was developing for the Wii. It was coming along. They were used to the system architecture at this moment. They were trying to create something very ambitious, something very big. But what actually changed the perception of this game was when Takashi was presenting this project to Satoru Iwata, Iwata, sorry, Iwata asked Takahashi to use the Xeno moniker that he'd been using for his games in the past to recognize his past accomplishments and the stories that he was trying to tell, huh. which led to Monado being the world being renamed to Xenoblade. Are the games actually connected, like story-wise? 
Uh, well, that's that's actually the funny thing. Before, when it was just called Monado, Beginning of the World, it wasn't intended to connect to them at all. Hmm. But with that Xeno moniker, it actually intentionally or otherwise made a whole bunch of these connections and laws points within the game connect to those past games. So there's actually at least enough for fans to say it exists connections between <laughs> the older games and the current ones. So it's never officially been stated, though, whether or not they're a part of the same universe? Not specifically, though with Xenoblade 2, we did see the main character of Xenosaga, um, Cosmos, uh, appear in that game, which kind of suggested some more uh, actual connections there. Huh. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's all a bit interesting seeing this story from three separate companies potentially all coming together now that they're with Nintendo. So jump, jumping back to Xenoblade, as it still had a bit of a struggle to go after getting its name, it released in Japan in 2010 to pretty much critical acclaim. It was fantastically well-received, but it didn't initially have plans for an English dub or a Western release at all. It was only due to the critical acclaim it received and the passion of fans through something called Project Rainfall, which was a big organized... Like online petition kind of thing? Yeah, online petition thing where they had like weekly art competitions and storytelling and petitions and just a whole bunch of creative expression encouraging Nintendo to bring this game over to the West. And it eventually happened, right? It was like a GameStop exclusive, I think, here in the States. Yeah, so it was it was it got a limited release. It was it was never gonna sell huge, but it did get it was it was dubbed in England, so it had very sort of strong English accents involved which gave a bit of character but in in the united states it was a gamestop exclusive which very much limited its potential audience in the west i'm not gonna lie i've never actually played it but <laughs> i did i did see it at a secondhand store um in like fantastic condition for a pretty good price so i do own it maybe i need to actually pop it in the wii and give it a try possibly or we could possibly wait for the definitive edition which is releasing this year which adds a whole new hd coat of paint that's true. Yeah, and I'd, I'd highly recommend it. So following the success of Xenoblade, we've seen Xenoblade X on the Wii U come out and Xenoblade 2 and Torna for the Switch. But it's that success has allowed Monolith to become very integral to Nintendo's core development. Like I was saying before, with Animal Crossing, they've worked with that. They've worked on Splatoon. They've worked on every Smash Brothers game since, since Brawl. And they were also integral in the legends of the breath of the wild existing the way it did they were the one who made the open world even possible for nintendo to do but in terms of where they're kind of heading in the future now they've now grown to having four separate studios with over 400 developers working for them across japan and they're constantly employing and bringing graduates through graduate programs because they they want to get those new ideas and those new takes on games really fulfilling that experimental vision they've been having all the way since back in Squaresoft. Oh, wow. We've had, like I said, those four Xenoblade games, and they've also got plans for at least a third game and a sequel to X at this point. So it's very much a series which is going strong. So we've seen Takahashi go from a studio in an environment where he tried to tell a story and he didn't quite get the chance to do it, to a point where him and his studio are flourishing better than they ever have, and we might actually get to the point where he can tell the story that he wanted for Perfect Works and finally actually realize the vision he's been wanting to realize since all the way back before 1999, which is kind of incredible, really. Yeah. I guess you could say he's really feeling it. Yeah, you, <laughs> you really, really could. 
Well, thanks for uh, coming on and telling us, giving us a lowdown on Monolith Soft and uh, the Xeno Blade Xeno series. We really appreciate it. It's it's been a pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about this sort of stuff, and it's been good to contribute to something which is I really something I really enjoy listening to. Hello. Hey, is this Captain Alex? It is. How's it going? Hey, it's Ben from Memory Card. What's up? Oh, not much. I, I hear that you're the one that has something to tell me. I do, yeah. I've been uh, doing a little bit of research about some some lost consoles, and I think I found one that's pretty cool. Okay, well, I'm excited to hear about that, because it's always interesting to find out about these consoles that kind of uh, were going to be the next big thing, and they completely fell apart. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I'm pretty disappointed that uh, this one didn't inspire more, even if it wasn't a success itself. I uh, I would have loved to see some of the technology from it be used on some newer products, but it's pretty unfortunate. Okay, well, let's hear it. All right, so uh, it is called the Casio Loopy. Loopy. And uh, so Casio in the U.S., I think most people probably know it as a watch company, but back in 1995, they released their first video game console. The Casio Loopy um, was a female console that was marketed exclusively to young girls and was released only in Japan. It's a pretty small market, um, but it was pretty. It was a game changer at the time because, as we know, with the Super NES and the regular NES, I mean, the whole slogan was like, "Now you're playing with power." And the guy in the ads was like the coolest kid you've ever seen in your life. Like he's cooler than any gamer even nowadays. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, I think in the United States, that person was Paul Rudd. Was it really? <laughs> yeah, there's an old commercial, a Super Nintendo commercial, where it's like Paul Rudd playing Super Nintendo on a big screen. So. Yeah, he's a pretty cool dude. So video games were always like a boy's thing, especially in the U.S. So Casio released this console for girls in uh, Japan, and it never made it over here. Um, But it had some really cool features. And the one that really stood out to me was that it had a built-in thermal printer so that you could print your own stickers from the games that you're playing. That's wild. Yeah. So do you know what else made it? a girl's console and i say that in quotes like was it yeah the coloring <laughs> or the games was there anything outside of the sticker printing that made it i the the console itself is purple um but outside of that all the all the games themselves i think they're more like this is like a dating simulator or like they're they were just yeah they weren't really action-packed games or like here's a puppy that we found in the park now you have to take care of it it wasn't really anything like crazy <laughs> i see but yeah, it was mostly just the coloring, the games. There was only 11, so it wasn't like this huge, huge game. Was it? Were the games like actual cartridges that you had to buy, or were they built into the system? From the way I understand it, I mean, the, the Wikipedia page and most of the information about it is very limited. Um, but from the, the research I've done, there seems to be a little bit of uh, software built in, but there was a few games as well that like they were cartridges. They look pretty much like Famicom cartridges, just maybe slightly taller. Okay. Um, but overall, that, that's pretty much the look of it. Really, the thing that gets me is this console was released in 1995, had this thermal printer built in. Um, so it really got me thinking about, obviously, Nintendo and their Game Boy printer, oh. um, which is, is the most similar thing really out there. And that wasn't released until I think it was 1998, the Game Boy printer. Um so this was three years before that. And then when the Game Boy printer came out, it was in black and white. 
I never owned one, but from what I've seen, the quality is pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, because the Game Boy camera couldn't take the best pictures. Right, it was like a one megapixel camera, so it was pretty crappy overall. But doing research on this, I watched some videos of the stickers being printed out, and they're really high quality for 1995. Yeah, they're they're like wow. way, way, way better than the Game Boy printer. Now, do you know if you could design like whatever sticker you want or did it have to be a specific thing from within the game? Yeah, so it's actually pretty interesting, too. So from what I understand is you could take screenshots and print almost anything. Uh, and then there were some games that specifically were here's like a this is a this game is specifically a designer. So like design your own coloring pages or design your own stickers and print them out. Ah. Um, but one really cool thing was there was a game called Magical Shop, and this was an accessory. So like all the old consoles, they had like things you could plug in and add even more features to it. Mm -hmm. So the Magical Shop actually allowed you to capture images from VCRs and DVD players, and then you could print images from your TV. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I was thinking like this thing, 1998, right? The Pokemon VHSs drop. You could print out a million (laughs) different Pokemon stickers or whatever you're watching at the time. It's pretty crazy that way. Yeah. If you if you had to go back and pick one one movie to make stickers of, what would you choose? I mean, at the time, it would have been the Pokemon first movie, probably. See, see, I think I would have, I think I would have gone with Space Jam. Oh, that's that's a pretty good one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some good scenes in there that I definitely need to uh, decorate my binder with. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Yeah, so, I mean, I would have loved to see this technology. The biggest thing about this console, yes, it was marketed to females, but it had a thermal printer in it in 1995. Uh, The closest we ever got to that, like I said, was the Game Boy printer. But beyond that, we also got the Pokemon Snap printer in Blockbuster stores in 1999. Right. Which that one was full color, uh, which was super unique, but you had to go to a store and do it. So it honestly seems like a pretty missed opportunity on Nintendo's part that they never enhanced the Game Boy printer or made an N64 printer because Pokemon Snap still to this day is such a huge game uh, that I think it really would have been a game changer. But yeah, way back in 1995, Casio made this random console for little girls in Japan, and it's kind of blown me away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it seems there might be more to the loopy than uh, than than we think. Maybe maybe we'll have to have you on again for a for a full blown episode if if it turns out there was uh, more under the surface. I am. Definitely up for it. I, when I get to Japan, hopefully this year, if travel plans work out, I think I'm going to be on the hunt for one because I'm super intrigued by this girl's console that I don't know. I don't know what it is about it. It seems like the kind of thing in Japan that's either going to be like dirt cheap or super expensive. Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, you know, that, that would it, be my idea. It yeah. flopped and no one cares about it or it flopped and that's why everybody cares about it. Right, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on. Captain Alex, we appreciate you taking your time. Absolutely. And we hope to hear from you again soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. See you guys soon. Hey, folks. We're putting this episode on pause for a moment to reveal how you can help Memory Card. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support our gaming history endeavors, you should consider pledging a dollar or two to our Patreon. For a single dollar a month, you'll receive special updates and be given the option of ad-free episodes. You won't have to hear this ad, the one that you're currently listening to, ever again. For $2 a month, you'll become an official member of Club 251, which gives listeners access to exclusive bonus content and detailed transcripts via our memory card website. 
Every little bit pledged helps us improve the show and grow Memory Card into something even more wonderful. Find out more on the support section of our website or at patreon.com backslash memcard. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. And now, back to the show. Hello? Hey, is this Cody? Yeah. Hey, Cody. It's Ben from Memory Card, as if, oh, as hey, if you didn't ben. know. What's up? <laughs> hey, so I hear you got a good uh, little blip for us today. Uh, Yeah, I do. It's about um, TF2, the original TF2 that was planned back in the late 90s. Okay, so let's walk it back just a little bit for some of the people out there. What is TF2? So TF2 is, or Team Fortress is, a, originally was a quick mod back in 96 made by some uh, fans of the game and they caught the attention of Valve and it be is a first person shooter with a bunch of different classes. Oh, okay. Like like Overwatch, right? It's just a rip off of Overwatch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the other yeah. way around, probably. <laughs> yeah, a rip off of Overwatch, yes. Twenty years prior. So so there was an original Team Fortress? So there was a Quake mod made in 1996 by Robin Walker and John Cook back when Quake was really big and it consisted of team-based shooter. Oh, okay. So you had 10 different classes you could choose from. You were in teams of up to like 16 players on each side. Oh wow, that's a lot. Right. So you could do capture the flag, you could do control point, you could do search and destroy, just a various amount of different game modes. And it caught the attention of Valve with Gabe Newell and others, the ones who made Half-Life, before they really blew up. And in 1988, they hired both Robin and John to their team. Shortly after the release of Half-Life in 98, they announced their new game, Valve's Team Fortress at the time. That was later renamed Team Fortress 2 Brotherhood of Arms. Huh. Unlike the original Team Fortress, it or the Team Fortress you know with the Team Fortress 2 today, uh, rocket jumping, minigun, and a lot of the unrealistic elements like the double jump from Scout was going to be removed due to them wanting to base it off real life, making it realistic modern war with weapons like the FAMAS or M16A2, kind of like Counter-Strike. Um, they were aiming for that with the original TF2 um, rather than the one we know now that's the 50s cartoon aesthetic that they have yeah i was gonna say i mean i haven't played the game much but all the videos and all the memes i've ever seen of it are very <laughs> like cartoony and goofy right and one class that was drastically different that they were introducing to it was called a commander class which was the one that everyone knew about which was a class about just having purely voice communication and the support side so it would be a class to where they'd sit in the back have a bird's eye view of the map to see where everything was. And the engineer could build cameras in nooks and crannies to where they could see different points to tell their team where to go. Oh, okay. So it was like they were in the control room kind of thing? Right. Then in 1999, despite Brotherhood of Arms being announced in 98, on, in April of 99, they released Team Fortress Classic, which was a Half-Life mod that was a port of the original Team Fortress, 
to the Half-Life engine, and this release was assumed to be the f- reason of TS2's first delay of many. Oh, okay. So they were they they announced that they were coming out with that second game, but then they're like, "Oh, wait, we revamped the first game," and people are like, "Oh, so now we're gonna we're gonna have to wait longer for the second one." Right, and then at E3 in '99, they showcased the game Brotherhood of Arms, showing their um, what they called the paramedic animation tech, which made animations more realistic and lifelike by using their blended animations, which was revolutionary at the time. Mm-hmm. They teamed up with Intel using their revolutionary at the time multi-resolution mesh technology. Huh. So that was the big thing they were showing off at E3. It earned two awards at E3, and then it went silent until mid-2000. I was going to say, when, was there a specific point when they made that shift from the more realistic to the cartoony, or is that coming up? Uh, so that was a while until 2006, because in mid 2000 it was delayed again, and at this point there was six years of absolute silence. Hmm. It became a well-known instance back then. It's actually on Wired's top ten for vaporware. <laughs> but in 2006 they had another iteration of it called Team Fortress Invasion that we don't know too much about. We have like a piece of concept art. That's about it. And then they got rid of this commander spec. And then the one we know today, they announced in 2006. It came out in 2007. Yeah, so it had like an eight years of development. Man, that's quite the ride there. Well, hey, thanks so much for sharing this story with us. Yeah, no problem. Hello? Hello? Who is this? <laughs> this is Ben from Memory Card. Is this Astron? This is Astron. Hi, Ben. Hey, I hear you got some, uh, got a story for me. I sure do. So, do you know the 2007 game Drawn to Life? I've seen it. I definitely remember seeing it on store shelves, and I, I think maybe my little brother had it, but I don't think I've ever played it. Well, this story is not about that game. It's about its sequel. Hmm. So, uh, the original Drawn to Life indeed came out in 2007, and it's basically a platformer where you can just draw platformer elements, like, uh, I know, you can draw a wheel which you can stand on, or ice blocks that float in the water, things like that, just you add to the, the platformer levels, and in those platformer levels you just collect pages, which are then uh, put into the Book of Life, and the Book of Life is like this magical book, and uh, with the pages of the Book of Life you slowly expand the village the the game is based in. Oh, okay. So this village is inhabited by some weird fox-like people called Raposa. And everyone in the game except you and one other character are a what one of these Raposa. The other character that's not a Raposa is uh, a human called Mike. And nobody really knows why he's a human. <laughs> but it's co- sort of played off as a joke in the first game. Like, uh, everyone's wondering, well, wow, why don't you have, like, these big ears like we do? And he's like, I, I don't, I have regular ears. You're the one with big ears, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, the first game has, like, a slowly expanding story. Nothing is too serious. And it sells reasonably well. I think it's the 69th best-selling uh, uh, DS game, which isn't bad for a third-party DS game. Yeah. It got quite a bit of attention. And uh, it got a sequel eventually. 
on the, the Nintendo DS, also developed by Fifth Cell. There is a Wii sequel, but that's a totally different story by a totally different studio, and it's apparently non-canon, according to the director of the first game, so make of that what you will. But uh, the DS game, uh, it starts really weird uh, by asking you uh, weird questions about, like, do you remember this night? Or how did you feel uh, when it happened? And you're not really sure what it's asking you about. But then the game just starts like normal, like what you expect. It's more platformer levels. There's more islands to travel to. And uh, overall, it's more of the same until the very end of the game. Mm -hmm. Because after you defeat the final boss, all the villagers get together. And suddenly, you, as the creator, you make the entire village disappear, except for Mike. And Mike has no idea what's going on. Oh, so you're kind of playing as like an omnipresent, like a like looking down on the people. Yeah, you're sort of like this godlike figure creating things for them and taking away shadowy clouds. Oh, okay. And uh, in the ending, only Mike is left in the village and he was the only human. So that's uh, a bit special, you know, like why is Mike suddenly here? He didn't have a big role in the story whatsoever. And then one of these, Raposa, suddenly uh, reappears, and it, uh, she's called Heather. And Heather is a character that, for the majority of the two games, was mute and couldn't talk. And she had this, like, shadow covering half of her face, and nobody really knew what it was. Hmm. And uh, she reveals that Mike is actually her brother, which is, again, weird, because Mike is a human. Yeah. And then suddenly the credits start to roll, and suddenly it's like a total art style shift it's like these realistic drawings which portray a family coming home from uh like a, i think it's a fun fair or something and they're driving in the car having fun and then suddenly it portrays them getting into a car crash oh jeez like you can uh well you, you don't see any blood or anything you just see mm -hmm. a picture of a car laying upside down and then you see like a hand uh, on the floor. Not, not like disembodied or anything. It's just you only see the person's hand. Right. Not moving. And then it cuts to uh, a girl in the hospital. She's looking over someone in a hospital bed. And this girl has uh, bandages over the side of her face. And uh, it's revealed that this girl is actually Heather. The girl with the shadow on the side of her face. Oh, gosh. So that shadow was actually uh, sort of symbolizing those bandages. And the boy in the hospital bed is actually Mike, the human. So apparently what happened is, according to the game story, this family got into a car crash. And uh, it's not sure if the parents survived or not. The game's director later said it's up to you to decide what happened to them. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's a big grim. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't put that weight on me. Yeah. Was it supposed to have all been in the girl's head or in Mike's head? It was all uh, apparently in Mike's head because at the end of the credits, Mike wakes up and he sees Heather. It's uh, implied at the very end of the game, right before the credit. Heather, uh, I think this is a direct quote, God, please give me my brother back. So that's a bit grim. <laughs> yeah. So as you can imagine, this isn't exactly the uh, most family-friendly of uh, endings to a children's game. Mm-hmm. But this game was rated E for everyone in the US, and it was rated free and up by Peggy in Europe, which is basically the equivalent. There wasn't any warning yeah. or anything about this somewhat heavy subject matter, 
But after the game's release, the ESRB got some complaints from various parents saying like, hey, uh, I didn't exactly expect this in my rated E for everyone game. This is quite a heavy subject matter. Mm -hmm. And THQ, the, the publishers of the game, agreed with them, understandably. So in any future releases of the game, they actually uh, changed the ending. Huh. Uh, there was a collection with like the first two games and any future releases of uh, the sequel had a changed ending. And instead of having a realistic art style uh, portraying a car crash, it now portrays uh, Mike in a more cartoonish art style. And instead of portraying him getting into a car crash and entering a coma, it portrays him falling from a tree and uh, briefly losing consciousness while his sister prays for him to return, I think. Oh, okay. So in the original one, he was still in a coma and she was just, like, badly injured? And in this... Okay. Yeah, and in the original ending, he does end up waking up. At, like, I think it's the very last image you're given. But in the, the other ending, it's just not even a coma. He's just briefly unconscious. <laughs> it seems like a bad soap opera, like, twist at the end there. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> hey, turns out it was, it was all a dream. It was a coma dream. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, it's uh, a bit... I think the trope is uh, used in other games as well, but this is the one that I know that's, like, completely throws every other story element out of the window. Yeah, it seems a little jarring. One small tidbit, because I mentioned before that there's a Wii sequel, uh, mm -hmm. which was developed by a different company. But that game has a totally different story with a totally different ending and doesn't feature any coma shenanigans whatsoever. Mm. So that's a bit interesting. Yeah, that they decided to take it in a completely different direction. Yeah. All right, well, that's super interesting. I. Don't think I had any clue uh, that that game had such a heavy ending or even that there was any controversy surrounding it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I played the game as a kid. I thought it was a bit of a weird ending, but uh, yeah, only later I realized, like, wait, that's, <laughs> that's not yeah. quite in line with what the rest of the game portrayed. Yeah, well, it seems you weren't the only one, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, well, hey, thanks for coming on today and, uh, and telling us about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hello. Hi, uh, is this Paul? Yes, my name is Paul. Great. I, hi. Um, did, I, you uh, wrote in saying you had some secret info about a Japanese game? Yes, it's, uh, it's very exclusive. Um, I want to premiere on this uh, podcast. Are, do you have some kind of voice uh, changer going on? You sound kind of like my co-host Push doing a weird voice. Ah, uh, no, 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 not not at all. Okay, all right. I was just checking. This is my. This is this is just how I talk. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Yeah, yeah. God. So, so what? What's about the, What about this game? What What's the name of the game that you uh, that you know about? Oh well, um, not a lot of gamers know about this, so you better buckle in for the ride. It's uh It's about this game that's called Doki Doki Panic. Oh, isn't that the one that they made the they changed it to make it Super Mario Brothers two in America? Whoa, wait, wait, what? What? How, how did you know about that? I feel like that's like one of the most commonly known 
gaming history stories of all time. <sighs> well, um... Hey, Push? Y yeah? <laughs> I knew it was you. <laughs> uh, I, I think I have to go because um, some things got leaked. Oh, all right. Okay. Well, uh, I'll see you for season three, I guess. Yeah. Bye, buddy. Love you. That's all for season two. Thank you so much for listening. We'd like to give a special shout out to talented chiptune composer Jamatar, who has once again allowed us to use his track Midori as opening and closing music. You can find more of his banging beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R on Spotify or visiting Jamatar.com. He was also our guest on the episode Mega Jet Setter, so check that out as well. If you have any feedback on the podcast or want to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out via Twitter at MemCardShow or on our website, MemoryCardShow.com. If you'd like to follow Push and I, we can be found at PushDustin and at SuperBentendo, respectively. Have you considered supporting MemoryCard on Patreon? If not, we hope you will. Currently, we're supported by quite a few awesome people, including Jackson Bertoli, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Tyler Davis, Courtney Cotton, Harrison, and Cody Nicolo. All of our Patreon info can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com slash memcard. A big thank you to everyone who contacted us with stories or called in for this episode, even that weird guy at the end. Season 3 of Memory Card is in the works, and we hope to share it with you this coming summer. Until then, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends about the podcast. Keep gaming, and don't forget to save often. <laughs>